Part Two, Section Two of the Life of King Alfred. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of King Alfred, by Asser, Bishop of Sherborne, translated by J. A. Giles. Part Two, Section Two. At that time, and long before, all the countries on the right-hand side of Britain belonged to King Alfred, and still belonged to him. For instance, King Hemeid, with all the inhabitants of the region of Demetia, compelled by the violence of the six sons of Rotri, had submitted to the dominion of the king. Howell also, son of Rhys, king of Glegising, and Brachmael and Fernmael, sons of Morick, kings of Gwent, compelled by the violence and tyranny of Earl Ethered and of the Mercians, of their own accord sought King Alfred, that they might enjoy his government and protection from him against their enemies. Helised also, son of Tender, king of Brecon, compelled by the force of the same sons of Rotri, of his own accord sought the government of the aforesaid king. And Anaraud, son of Rotri, with his brother, at length abandoning the friendship of the Northumbrians, from which he received no good but harm, came into King Alfred's presence, and eagerly sought his friendship. The king received him honorably, received him as his son by confirmation from the bishop's hand, and presented him with many gifts. Thus he became subject to the king with all his people on the same condition, that he should be obedient to the king's will in all respects, in the same way as Ethered with the Mercians. Nor was it in vain that all these princes gained the friendship of the king, for those who desired to augment their worldly power obtained power, those who desired money gained money, and in like way those who desired his friendship, or both money and friendship, succeeded in getting what they wanted. But all of them gained his love and guardianship and defense from every quarter, even as the king with his men could protect himself. When therefore I had come into his presence at the royal vill, called Leonaford, I was honorably received by him, and remained that time with him at his court eight months, during which I read to him whatever books he liked, and such as he had at hand. For this is his most usual custom, both night and day, amid his many other occupations of mind and body, either himself to read books, or to listen whilst others read them. And when I frequently asked his leave to depart, and could in no way obtain it, at length, when I had made up my mind by all means to demand it, he called me to him at twilight on Christmas Eve, and gave me two letters in which was a long list of all the things which were in two monasteries, called in Saxon Ambersbury and Banwell. And on that same day he delivered to me those two monasteries with all the things that were in them, and a silken pall of great value, and a load for a strong man of incense, adding these words, that he did not give me these trifling presents, because he was unwilling hereafter to give me greater, for in the course of time he unexpectedly gave me Exeter, 
with all the diocese which belonged to him in Saxony and in Cornwall, besides gifts every day, without number, in every kind of worldly wealth, which it would be too long to enumerate here, lest they should make my reader tired. But let no one suppose that I have mentioned these presents in this place for the sake of glory or flattery, or to obtain greater honor. I call God to witness that I have not done so, but that I might certify to those who are ignorant how profuse he is in giving. He then at once gave me permission to ride to those two rich monasteries, and afterwards to return to my own country. In the year of our Lord's Incarnation 886, which was the thirty-eighth since the birth of Alfred, the army so often before mentioned again fled the country and went into the country of the western Franks, directing their ships to the river called the Seine, and sailed up it as far as the city of Paris, and there they wintered and measured out their camp. They besieged that city a whole year as far as the bridge that they might prevent the inhabitants from making use of it, for the city is situated on a small island in the middle of the river. But by the merciful favor of God, and the brave defense of citizens, the army could not force their way inside the walls. In the same year, Alfred, king of the Anglo-Saxons, after the burning of the cities and the slaying of the people, honorably rebuilt the city of London and made it again habitable. He gave it into the custody of his son-in-law, Ethered, Earl of Mercia, to which king all the Angles and Saxons, who before had been dispersed everywhere or were in captivity with the pagans, voluntarily turned and submitted themselves to his dominion. Note. The whole of this paragraph concerning Oxford is thought to be an interpolation because it is not known to have existed in more than one manuscript copy. End of note. In the same year there arose a foul and deadly discord at Oxford between Grimbald, with those learned men whom he had brought with him, and the old scholars whom he had found there, who, on his arrival, refused altogether to embrace the laws, modes, and forms of prelection instituted by the same Grimbald. During three years there had been no great dissension between them, but there was a secret enmity, which afterwards broke out with great atrocity, clearer than the light itself. To appease this quarrel, that invincible King Alfred, having been informed of the strife by a messenger from Grimbald, went to Oxford to put an end to the controversy and endured much trouble in hearing the arguments and complaints which were brought forwards on both sides. The substance of the dispute was this. The old scholars contended that literature had flourished at Oxford before the coming of Grimbald, although the number of scholars was smaller than in ancient time, because several had been driven away by the cruelty and tyranny of the pagans. They also proved and showed by the undoubted testimony of ancient annals that the orders and institutions of that place had been sanctioned by certain pious and learned men, as, for instance, by St. Gildas, Melchinus, Nennius, Kentigern, and others, who had all grown old there in literature, and happily administered everything there in peace and concord. 
and also that St. Germanus had come to Oxford and stopped there half a year at the time when he went through Britain to preach against the Pelagian heresy. He wonderfully approved of the customs and institutions above mentioned. The king, with unheard-of humility, listened to both sides carefully and exhorted them again and again with pious and wholesome admonitions to cherish mutual love and concord. He therefore left them with this decision, that each party should follow their own counsel and preserve their own institutions. Grimbald, displeased at this, immediately departed to the monastery at Winchester, which had been recently founded by King Alfred, and ordered a tomb to be carried to Winchester, in which he proposed, after this life, that his bones should be laid in the vault which had been made under the chancel of St. Peter's Church in Oxford which church the same Grimbald had built from its foundations, of stone polished with great care. Note. Hyde Abbey. End of note. In the year of our Lord's Incarnation 887, which was the thirty-ninth of King Alfred's life, the above-mentioned army of the pagans, leaving the city of Paris uninjured because they could not succeed against it, sailed up the river Seine under the bridge until they reached the mouth of the river Materne, Marne, where they left the Seine, and following for a long time the course of the Marne, at length, but not without much labor, they arrived at a place called Chesi, a royal ville, where they wintered one year. In the following year they entered the mouth of the river Iona, Yun, not without doing much damage to the country, and there remained one year. In the same year, Charles, king of the Franks, went the way of all flesh. But Arnulf, his brother's son, six weeks before he died, had expelled him from his kingdom. After his death, five kings were appointed, and the kingdom was split into five parts. But the principal rank in the kingdom, justly and deservedly, devolved on Arnulf, save only that he committed an unworthy offense against his uncle. The other four kings promised fidelity and obedience to Arnulf, as was proper, for none of these four kings was hereditary on his father's side in his share of the kingdom, as was Arnulf. Therefore, though the five kings were appointed immediately on the death of Charles, yet the empire remained in the hands of Arnulf. Such, then, was the division of the kingdom. Arnulf received the countries on the east of the river Rhine, Rodolf the inner parts of the kingdom, Oda the western part, Bjorngar and Guido, Lombardy and those countries which are in that part of the mountains. But they did not keep these large dominions in peace, for they twice fought a pitched battle and often mutually ravaged their kingdoms and drove each other out of their dominions. In the same year in which that pagan army left Paris and went to Chesi, Ethelhelm, Earl of Wiltshire, carried to Rome the alms of King Alfred and of the Saxons. In the same year Alfred, King of the Anglo-Saxons so often before mentioned, by divine inspiration, began on one and the same day to read and to interpret but that I may explain this more fully to those who are ignorant, I will relate the cause of this long delay in beginning. 
On a certain day we were both of us sitting in the king's chamber, talking on all kinds of subjects as usual, and it happened that I read to him a quotation out of a certain book. He heard it attentively with both his ears, and addressed me with a thoughtful mind, showing me at the same moment a book which he carried in his bosom, wherein the daily courses and psalms, and prayers which he had read in his youth, were written, and he commanded me to write the same quotation in that book. Hearing this, and perceiving his ingenuous benevolence and devout desire of studying the words of divine wisdom, I gave, though in secret, boundless thanks to Almighty God, who had implanted such a love of wisdom in the king's heart. But I could not find any empty space in that book wherein to write the quotation, for it was already full of various matters. Wherefore I made a little delay, principally that I might stir up the bright intellect of the king to a higher acquaintance with the divine testimonies. Upon his urging me to make haste and write it quickly, I said to him, Are you willing that I should write that quotation on some leaf apart? For it is not certain whether we shall not find one or more other such extracts which will please you. And if that should so happen, we shall be glad that we have kept them apart. Your plan is good, said he and I gladly made haste to get ready a sheet, in the beginning of which I wrote what he bade me. And on that same day I wrote therein, as I had anticipated, no less than three other quotations which pleased him. And from that time we daily talked together, and found out other quotations which pleased him, so that the sheet became full, and deservedly so. According as it is written, the just man builds upon a moderate foundation, and by degrees passes to greater things. Thus, like a most productive bee, he flew here and there, asking questions, as he went, until he had eagerly and unceasingly collected many various flowers of divine scriptures, with which he thickly stored the cells of his mind. Now when that first quotation was copied, he was eager at once to read, and to interpret in Saxon, and then to teach others, even as we read of that happy robber who recognized his Lord, I, the Lord of all men, as he was hanging on the blessed cross, and saluting him with his bodily eyes only, because elsewhere he was all pierced with nails, cried, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. For it was only at the end of his life that he began to learn the rudiments of the Christian faith. But the king, inspired by God, began to study the rudiments of divine scripture on the sacred solemnity of St. Martin, November 11th, and he continued to learn the flowers collected by certain masters, and to reduce them into the form of one book, as he was then able, although mixed one with another, until it became almost as large as a psalter. This book he called his Enchiridion, or Manual because he carefully kept it at hand day and night, and found, as he told me, no small consolation therein. But, as has already been written by a certain wise man, of watchful minds are they whose pious care it is to govern well. So must I be watchful, in that I just now drew a kind of comparison or similarity, though in dissimilar manner, between that happy robber and the king for the cross is hateful to every one, wherever there is suffering. 
But what can he do if he cannot save himself or escape thence? Or by what art can he remain there and improve his cause? He must, therefore, whether he will or no, endure with pain and sorrow that which he is suffering. Now the king was pierced with many nails of tribulation, though placed in the royal seat, for from the twentieth year of his age to the present year, which is his fortieth, he has been constantly afflicted with the most severe attacks of an unknown complaint, so that he has not a moment's ease, either from suffering the pain which it causes, or from the gloom which is thrown over him by the apprehension of its coming. Note. This must consequently have been written in A.D. 888. End of note. Moreover, the constant invasions of foreign nations, by which he was continually harassed by land and sea without any interval of quiet or a just cause of disquiet, what shall I say of his repeated expeditions against the pagans, his wars and incessant occupations of government? of the daily embassies sent to him by foreign nations from the Tyrrhenian Sea to the farthest end of Ireland. Note. Wise conjectures that we ought to read Hiberii, Spain, and not Hibernii, Ireland, in this passage. End of note. For we have seen and read letters accompanied with presents which were sent to him by Abel, the patriarch of Jerusalem, what shall I say of the cities and towns which he restored, and of others which he built, where none had been before? Of the royal halls and chambers, wonderfully erected by his command with stone and wood? Of the royal villes constructed of stone, removed from their old site, and handsomely rebuilt by the king's command in more fitting places? Besides the disease above mentioned, he was disturbed by the quarrels of his friends, who would voluntarily endure little or no toil, though it was for the common necessity of the kingdom. But he alone, sustained by the divine aid, like a skilful pilot, strove to steer his ship laden with much wealth into the safe and much-desired harbour of his country, though almost all his crew were tired, and suffered them not to faint or hesitate, though sailing amid the manifold waves and eddies of this present life. For all his bishops, earls, nobles, favorite ministers and prefects, who, next to God and the king, had the whole government of the kingdom, as is fitting, continually received from him instruction, respect, exhortation, and command. Nay, at last, when they were disobedient and his long patience was exhausted, he would reprove them severely, and censure at pleasure their vulgar folly and obstinacy and in this way he directed their attention to the common interests of the kingdom. But, owing to the sluggishness of the people, these admonitions of the king were either not fulfilled, or were begun late at the moment of necessity, and so ended less to the advantage of those who put them in execution. For I will say nothing of the castles which he ordered to be built, but which, being begun late, were never finished because the hostile troops broke in upon them by land and sea, and, as often happened, the thwarters of the royal ordinances repented when it was too late, and blushed at their non-performance of his commands. I speak of repentance when it is too late on the testimony of Scripture, 
whereby numberless persons have had cause for too much sorrow when many insidious evils have been wrought. But though by these means, sad to say, they may be bitterly afflicted and roused to sorrow by the loss of fathers, wives, children, ministers, servant-men, servant-maids, and furniture and household stuff, what is the use of hateful repentance when their kinsmen are dead and they cannot aid them, or redeem those who are captive from captivity? For they are not able even to assist those who have escaped, as they have not wherewith to sustain even their own lives. They repented, therefore, when it was too late, and grieved at their incautious neglect of the king's commands. And they praised the royal wisdom with one voice, and tried with all their power to fulfill what they had before refused, namely concerning the erection of castles and other things generally useful to the whole kingdom. End of Part 2, Section 2